0: You're listening to a free version of the Fight to Repair podcast. To hear our full interview, consider becoming a premium subscriber to Fight to Repair. An annual subscription is just $5 a month and gives you early access to our original reporting, as well as exclusive access to our full-length podcasts, as well as premium events, including interviews with leading figures in the Right to Repair movement and in-person events. To learn more, go to fighttorepair.news.
1: So I'm definitely the opinion that if if someone denies you a natural right, you should just take it. And take it without apology, and if others have that same problem, maybe help them take it too. Looking at the right to repair activism, I think that anyone who has any semblance of mechanical or electrical skill and looks at the broad question, like, should you be able to repair your own stuff? There is only one correct answer. Absolutely, you should be able to repair your own stuff.
0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Fight to Repair podcast. For those of you who are new, I'm Paul Roberts. I'm the publisher of Fight to Repair newsletter and host of this week's podcast. This week, we're going to bring you an interview with Travis Goodspeed, a self-proclaimed hillbilly hacker and a gifted embedded systems reverse engineer. Travis is the foremost advocate of junk hacking, which is probing the features and security of relatively low-value stuff like kids' toys and consumer electronics as a way to understand and shift the hardware and software foundation of the Internet of Things. To start off, I asked Travis to tell us a little bit about himself, including his time growing up on the grounds of Dollywood, Dolly Parton's famous theme park, where his mom spent her career as a stained glass artist.
1: name is Travis Goodspeed. I don't really have a title.
0: So. <laughs> it's one of the things I love about you. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. Obviously, this Fight to Repair podcast. We focus on the issues around right to repair. And your name really precedes you, especially in like information security circles. But for our audience who might not be as familiar, because they might not necessarily be InfoSec people, could you give us a little bit of your origin story and uh, talk to us about your superpowers and what you
1: do? Sure. So I'm a hillbilly out of East Tennessee. I grew up at a Dolly Parton's theme park called Dollywood. (laughs) I'm not joking. My mother was the Stinglass craftsman there for 25 years. So have you met Dolly? Briefly as a child. She was nice. But at the time, I didn't understand that what? she's one of those few celebrities that might uh, deserve that sort of recognition. Yeah, she's a pretty amazing person.
0: Really interesting. Okay, so grew up in and around Dollywood. Yeah, and then um, having a home
1: glass laboratory, I got to grow up with soldering equipment and wire cutters and pliers and all of that stuff, basically from birth.
0: That is so cool. Okay, we're talking to you because you have a really interesting relationship with- Stuff, I guess that's one thing I would, how I would put it, which is you really have made a name for yourself. And this is like one of the many things you do of taking things, sometimes low end electronics or kind of consumer electronics and really exploring them. And from that, developing techniques and methods that are applicable, not just to like doing things with those devices, but also obviously with higher end and more expensive and more critical technologies as well. You have this whole concept of junk hacking. Could you talk about what junk hacking is, why it matters, why it's important?
1: Sure. So you should probably begin with the information security view of junk hacking. There is, I wouldn't call it a moral panic. I think it was just a mailing list post or two. But this idea... (laughs) It's hard to tell those two things apart sometimes. Yeah. The basic idea at the beginning was that all of these infosec presentations began to be made about hacking things whose security did not matter. I really don't care if there's a security vulnerability in my electric toothbrush or the junk around-
0: This kid's toy or something like that.
1: Yeah. Like that does not matter as far as the security of that device is concerned. So there was a bit of a backlash against these presentations saying that they weren't very relevant because the security of the target didn't matter. Right. and. I thought this was dramatically missing the point of the research, which is not that you can hack the device, but that you can hack the chips in the device, which are also found in things whose security does matter. And by studying the technique on an inoffensive target that can be cheaply purchased, like a children's toy, suddenly all of the barriers to publication disappear. An undergraduate student who might have to worry about legal trouble, perhaps his university won't defend him, can publish very detailed, reproducible scientific work on how to hack a children's toy because the toy manufacturer will not care enough to sue. But if you do that exact same research against an industrial device or against something that's very expensive or perhaps dual use and also found in military applications then the manufacturer becomes very concerned, very active, and might file a lawsuit. And even if the lawsuit doesn't result in judgment for the plaintiff, it's still very expensive for the defendant. Sure. So I love jump hacking as this target where you can freely go after things almost as a, a playground without consequences. And then the techniques that you learn are immediately applicable to the real world. So that time isn't wasted. It's a nice middle ground between going after a prepared and fictional target Mm -hmm. and going after something that will start a lawsuit.
0: You mentioned the children's toy that was like end of life. And one thing that that I've seen, I'm sure you've seen this as well, is increasingly as we enter this kind of internet of things where all of the stuff we buy has an IP address and is internet connected and basically managed via these servers, these cloud-based servers. We're starting to get these sort of sudden die-offs where companies will go out of business and just shut down their servers. And then all the stuff that basically connects to those servers just dies or turns into really elaborate paperweights. You would seem to be someone who might have a solution to that. Like people have often talked about like, well, there need to be some laws to prevent companies from just doing that, just walking away from stuff and basically killing it off. And you would seem to be somebody who might sort of have a solution, which is maybe the community should just take over this stuff or write new software for it and just keep using this just under different auspices, different management, so to speak. Your thought, like Sono speakers, there's a big issue with Sono speakers. There've been a whole bunch of products where this has happened. Basically, I'm really interested in your thoughts on that phenomenon.
1: Okay, so I'm not going so far as Dan Gear, who has this proposal that the die-offs be mandatory, yeah, rather than waiting for them to happen by accident.
0: He does it in the name of security. We should say if you're not going to actively manage it, then it should be then it should be pre put to death.
1: Dan might support
0: open sourcing it
1: as well, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, the core of this is that. Any solution would be a lot easier if not for those security assholes, yeah. <laughs> including myself. Um, yeah, exactly. Once, you have to
0: say that in your, like, in your Scooby-Doo
1: voice, too. Yeah, if it weren't for those damn kids.
0: <laughs> if it weren't for those damn <laughs> security guys.
1: So th- the core of it is that if you're manufacturing a smart product that talks to a server, a really effective way to keep people from messing with your servers is to make sure that only the devices can do it. This isn't perfect because the devices will be hacked and those credentials will be taken out, but it's necessary to prevent things like shadow production runs, making another device that reuses your server infrastructure Mm -hmm. so that you as a manufacturer wind up paying for your competitor's product. And it's really hard to find a middle ground In which you freely allow the experimentation that you and I and many others feel we deserve in products, while also making it cheaply and making it hard for the consumer to do anything dangerous with. For example, you can buy IoT cameras that just plug into the network and have an HTTP server that you grab the pictures from. When Mm -hmm. I was an undergrad, we had great fun building a search engine of the university's entire IP B block, and then grabbing every camera and making like a search engine where you could see like all the different spots from campus and stuff. But back then we were talking like 30, 35 cameras over a student body of 100,000 students.
0: There are more cameras now.
1: Not only are there more cameras, but it's pretty common when you visit a bar or a restaurant to be given guest access to their network. And if that same system were used, then it would be very easy for any patron to steal all of the camera data or to like stalk people within the bar and stuff. And so, a rather ugly but very effective way to prevent that is to make the things only talk to a remote server Mm -hmm. and then not to trust the local network administrator to know what's going on. I don't see a clean solution to that on either side. I think that the manufacturers would do away with having their own servers to save money if for no other reason, if they could still have a viable product. I also think that the consumers are entitled little shits who demand every feature that could possibly be offered. They're not going to accept the need for a VPN as a prerequisite to access the LAN stuff if you can have a cell phone app that runs through the evil corporation servers to do the same thing.
0: Because it's more convenient.
1: Right. And by making convenience and price trump all other considerations, we get what we're buying.
0: When you look at devices, like when you look at an iPhone, I know what Apple wants you to see. It's only ever what they say it is. But when you look at an iPhone, what do you see?
1: I don't know. Not the sort of computer that I was raised on. I began with computers like the Apple II, where the assumption was that as you buy it, you are not an expert but you can learn to be a, an equal participant. You can learn to write software and maybe you're only writing it to manage a recipe book. Maybe it's not the most elegant or sophisticated software, but you're expected to be able to write some of your own stuff. I'm really frightened that entirely disappeared from our culture that you can still do computer programming as a professional or as a whiz kid, but that, about since MySpace died, no mere mortal is expected to ever touch code. And because of malware, there's a very good reason to keep those restrictions. Not a great reason, but a good one. And so while I would prefer that Apple has a middle ground of allowing the consumer to unlock the phone, like many Android phones have a an official unlock that you can perform in order to get a root show. I do understand why they don't. Mm. Especially with jailbreaking being cool, the more popular it is, the more of their user base will be vulnerable and the more their reputation will be hurt.
0: True. And when you sell something to someone, right, then that's just the risk you take. Like, when Chevy sold all those cars to people in East L.A., (laughs) right? I'm sure to Chevy it looked like something not great for their brand that these things got tricked out and had hydraulic systems and flames painted on them and all the other stuff. It wasn't their car anymore.
1: (laughs) Honestly, if I'm ever going to buy a Chevrolet made in this millennia, that's the only place I would buy one from. Maybe Austin. Yeah. Um, From the manufacturer side, I hate what they do, but I do understand it. Mm -hmm. From the consumer side, if the only car you can buy is a boring Chevy, I I think you might not only have the right, but also the responsibility to trick it out and add some hydraulics and make (laughs) it bounce around and look cool. Right. Because if not for people doing things like that, every car on the road would be boring as sin. Right. Like, Everything manufactured in the past 25 years is ugly. Maybe you can point at one supercar as an exception, but there are very few and very far between, and it used to not be that way. Do you remember yeah. when cars could be green? I do. Yeah. We had a green
0: car. We had a, a tornado. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not anymore. No. One thing that comes up a lot, and you obviously, you spend a lot of time taking stuff apart and figuring out how it works and rebuilding it. One of the things that comes up a lot in right to repair circles is just how difficult some products these days are to take apart that manufacturers are making stuff to not be serviceable, really, that it's more or less disposable with glue and glued in components and very non-removable cases and things like that. Have you encountered that? And what are your thoughts? Because obviously you take great Enjoyment in taking things apart and re-engineering them.
1: Yeah. I see a legitimate side to that and a side that I think is a little whiny. Starting with the less sturdy argument, I often see people complain that things are hard to take apart because of requirements of making the thing that small or that sleek. Like I, I want a cell phone that is as thin as paper. And I can't get that, but I will buy a phone that is as thin as possible. And to make that same phone with proper machine screws, with out glue, without press-on connectors, without fragile flex cables, that would thicken the phone and mm-hmm. increase the cost. And so if I'm not willing to pay that extra price, I can't really blame the manufacturer for not giving. So my final question Travis is just
0: on the right to repair I'm really interested in your thoughts you've given some sort of insights but obviously you know right to repair is something that is in the national conversation states are considering it There are federal laws and you seem to me to be someone who, regardless of your feelings about right-to-repair laws, embodies the ethos of right-to-repair in so many ways. You're basically a poster child for right-to-repair, whether you like it or not. So I'm really interested in your thoughts. And when we hear stories about farmers out in the Midwest locked out of their farm equipment and basically beholden to authorized repair personnel to come out and clear error code and- and facilitate simple repair and maintenance. And by virtue of, d- of basically DRM, locked out of the, this equipment that they bought. If you were technology czar or, I don't know, head of the FTC or something, <laughs> what your response to that would be? So
1: I, I'm definitely the opinion that if, if someone denies you a natural right, you should just take it and take it without apology. And if others have that same problem, maybe help them take it too. So it, In the case of the farm equipment being locked down, in the case of cell phones being difficult to repair, I think in all of these cases, the cleanest solution is the technical one. In that When I hack a device in order to be able to repair it or to repurpose it, I don't really have to risk the unintended side effects of bad legislation. Looking at the right to repair activism, I think that anyone who has any semblance of mechanical or electrical skill and looks at the broad question, like, should you be able to repair your own stuff? There is only one correct answer absolutely you should be able to repair your own stuff but when that when the obligations of the manufacturers keep getting extended when there are calls not just for them to allow you to repair it but also to help you or to change their designs in order to make it easier for you they see that they're getting these extra burdens placed upon them and I think even the ones who are not an evil robber baron twisting his mustache begin to realize that there is a cost to these things and they might be the ones forced to bear it. So I think that if the right to repair is going to make it into law, a lot of care needs to be done in defining it in a way that can you know, make sense to manufacturers and consumers and the courts in an unambiguous way that doesn't. Ask for more than the legislature can deliver.
0: Don't start to legislate technical matters or design features or engineering concepts, basically.
1: Or if you do, pick one thing that's very important and ask for that one thing. But as the shopping list becomes too long, it begins to look like something that will either never happen or will be impossible to keep up with.
0: Hey, Travis, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us. I really appreciate it. It was such a great conversation. We should do it again.
1: Yeah, thank you. I will be back.